The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. Would you pray with me one more time? And Father, as we have read your word and now we, we pray and we ask that you would illuminate, Lord, our minds to be able to understand, to receive your word. Send your Holy Spirit to work in this time that we would be grown in our appreciation of what Christ has accomplished for us and that we would grow in our love and in our affection for one another, recognizing the place that we hold with one another in this body of Christ. Use your word by your spirit to build your church for your glory today. Amen. You can go ahead and take a seat. So we're continuing on in Ephesians 2. Nathan preached through the first 10 verses last Sunday. And as our our reading reflects, we're going to finish up Ephesians 2 this morning. And Paul is is continuing to build this doctrinal base for us. If you remember, as we were first launching into the book of Ephesians, that Seth laid out kind of a, a rough outline, a framework for us to understand this book. So here in the first three chapters, there's this great doctrinal base that is built where Paul is is telling the Ephesians of the great work of God. If you remember, even in the first chapter, that first long sentence that we came to in verses 3 through 14, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he went on to explain and to elaborate on all of these spiritual blessings that are ours, all of this great work that God has done. And since then, Paul just continues to unfold and to help us understand what a great work it is that God has done for us. And then in chapter 4, it gets more into the application, more into the practical. So now that we have this base, this foundation, this understanding of God and his work among us, this is how we apply it. This is how we put it on the ground and we begin walking it out and living it out through our lives. Well, I think we'd have a hard time coming to a passage that seems, at least in my study and my consideration of it, more fitting for us today, in the place that we are at, in the times that we live. As we look at verses 11 through 22 of Ephesians 2, we see this this great uniting work that God has done in Christ. 
and that we, together, church, are a dwelling place for God. He expands on this. He helps us to understand it. And he first does so by asking the Ephesians to think back, to remember. And that's what we see in verses 11 and 12. To remember, and he says, remember your separation. Remember when you were separate. If you look with me to verse 11, this is the first point this morning. Remember your separation. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. First of all, remember your separation. Consider your past. Think about what your identity was prior to God's call upon you and your conversion. Paul tells them very clearly, this is what you were. You were separated from Christ. You were alienated. You were strangers. He just piles on these words to help the Ephesians understand. And I I think not just know intellectually, but really begin to feel the weight of, yes, I was separated. Before God's call of me and my conversion, I remember that. I remember being so far outside. You see, God had his peculiar people, the people of Israel, that he had called. He he gave them laws. He gave them commands. And all of these were to make them unique, to identify them as the people of God in the way that they dressed, in the way that they worked, in the way that they rested. All of these things were distinguishing characteristics of God's people. They were different than all of the other nations around them. The foods that they ate, the foods that they didn't eat, where they worshipped, how they worshipped. And one of the things that was primary to that was circumcision. Circumcision was that very primary sign of this distinction of the Israelites. But Paul says that circumcision, you Gentiles, you that didn't participate in this circumcision of the flesh, you were called, and it's in quotes, the uncircumcision. That's how the Israelites would refer to the Gentiles. If you remember back to David and Goliath, Joel and I read through that story recently, And he refers to Goliath as an uncircumcised Philistine. You don't belong to us. You're different than us. And one of those distinguishing characteristics is the fact that you are uncircumcised. But true circumcision, Paul says, is not the circumcision of the flesh, 
but the circumcision of the heart. You see, those who were of the circumcision, he says at the end of verse 11, it is made in the flesh by hands. Well, that is the people of Israel. But Paul, in other places in Scripture, goes on to even expound on this more. In Romans chapter 2, he says, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 11, in him, Paul tells the church at Colossae, you believers, in him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And really, this is the work that God has been doing all along to bring a people united in Christ. And there was a time when physical circumcision, the outward and the physical, was the sign of those people called out by God. But even back then, it wasn't just the outward and the physical. But even then, it was those that had their hearts committed to the Lord. Now, the Gentiles, they were outside of this all. They were separated. They didn't have God's law. They didn't have God's commandments. They were strangers, verse 12, to the covenants of promise. They didn't know the things that God had been communicating to the people of Israel, the promises that he had been making And the end result of this, he says at the end of verse 12, is that you had no hope and you were without God in the world. Consider this. Consider your identity prior to your call and prior to your conversion before God got a hold of you and said, you are mine and gave you new life. That's what Paul is asking these believers in Ephesus to remember. Remember what you were like. Remember how far outside you were. And remember the effect of that identity that you lived without hope, that you lived without God? Do you remember, church? Do you remember what it was like before your relationship with Christ to live without hope and to live without God? I remember as a fairly young boy for years, probably from eight to 10 or 11, where I had a Bible and I went to church, but I had no relationship with Christ. And I remember just sitting and thinking, what is eternity going to be like? Just this big nothingness 
I had no hope. There was no hope of heaven. Eternity wasn't, I'm going to be in the presence of God with all the brothers and sisters in Christ through all of the ages, and it's going to be glorious. No, I just sat and considered darkness, which really isn't accurate either. I wasn't very theological at the time, but I, I remember, I don't have hope. I don't have God. And if you think back to that time in your life, where did you seek comfort? What kinds of things did you try to tap into for peace? I'd venture a guess that you were never successful, that you never arrived at a place of peace. You could distract yourself. You could numb yourself for a season. You could think, no, I'm happy, and this is working, and I'm holding this all together. But things would fall apart. Without God, there's no hope. There's no peace. There's no comfort. There's no solace. Those without Christ, that's their condition. That's their state. Church, we have a message of hope because we have a God, and he is a God of hope. And I hope that you understand and and realize that we have even been given this message of hope and that we get to live our lives in hope. Even as Paul writes to the Thessalonians, we don't grieve like others who have no hope. Yes, we grieve. It's a reality. Life is hard. Sometimes things stink. It's difficult. There's death. There's decay. There are the effects of sin. But we don't go through it as people with no hope. Because of God, we have hope. But remember that. Remember that at one time, that was you. And that's what Paul is is calling on the Ephesians to think back to. It's true for each and every one of us. But there was a change. There was a change that occurred, and that's what Paul explains next, and that's our next point, the second point this morning. Not just remember your separation, but then he says, realize your unification. Realize your unification, and that's in verses 13 through 18. And this glorious word in verse 13, but... But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Remember what you were, separated, strangers, aliens. But now in Christ Jesus, even though you were far off, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is their present state. From being far off to brought near, this is what God has been doing all along, drawing people to himself. Do you remember Abram? In Ur of the Chaldees, an idolater. And God called him to himself, someone who was far off, and he brought him near. And he made a promise to him. And he entered into covenant with him. 
and he spoke to him in you. Show all the nations of the earth be blessed. This is what God has been doing all along. And it's a work that is by the blood of Christ. It's by the blood of Christ. This is what makes you part of the church, that Christ has purchased you. Do you understand that? That's what brings you into the church. It's not the way that you dress. It's not that you conform to the way that, that we look. It's not performance. It's, it's not age, Eric. Hallelujah. <laughs> we had uh, some fun this morning. <laughs> Uh, It's not your hair color, not your gifts, your education, money, kind of car you drive, what kind of house that you own. It's none of those things. Christ's blood is that uniting factor. You, who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And that's why we're here, because of the powerful blood of Christ. It it brings us near through atonement. You know that word, atonement? Reconciling us to God, paying the penalty for our sin, satisfying the wrath of God on our behalf. Christ's blood atones for our sins, something that we can't do. We could spend all of our lifetime trying to work and say, God, I'm going to be good enough for you. I'm going to earn this salvation. And we would fail. We would fail. We would be so far off the mark, we wouldn't even land on the target, let alone hit a bullseye. And that's what Christ did, a bullseye. His blood atones for our sins. But also, Christ's blood brings us near through cleansing. He brings us near through cleansing. Yes, atoning, but also cleansing. It pays the penalty for our sin, but even more, it cleanses us and it washes us. It removes the stain of sin. Christ's blood removes the stain of sin. It's one of those paradoxes, right? That, that having robes dipped in the blood of the lamb makes them spotless. Re- Revelation chapter 7 and verses 13 and 14, one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know, and he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. It purifies us. It removes all of the stain of sin, Christ's blood that we can stand confidently, that we can come boldly to the throne of grace, knowing Christ's blood 
It's paid the penalty, but it's also washed me clean. I am covered in his blood. I am white as snow. That God looks at me and he no longer sees my sin. He sees me full up to the measure of Christ's righteousness. All of Christ's righteousness, all of his merit has been credited to my account. That God looks at me and he sees the righteousness of Christ. We're cleansed. It also brings us near through reviving. Christ's blood brings us near through reviving. That is... It gives us life. His blood gives life. Some of you here, you, you remember the, the health challenges that we went through back in 2014 with Joel. It was wrestling season, and watching our son at that point in his life not being able to run from one end of a wrestling mat to the other end of a wrestling mat without stopping to catch his breath. We learned from the doctor that his red blood cell count was dangerously low. We took him to Dornbecker's hospital for an emergency admittance, and soon after, they had a bag of blood tapped into him a blood transfusion. They recognized his dangerous condition and they needed to boost his red blood cell count. And so for weeks and months, visits to Dornbecker's for transfusions that became our regular pattern before God finally and miraculously healed him and his body was then producing red blood cells on its own. But it was that that was transfused, it was that which was was infused, brought into Joel from outside, an outside source that really brought life to him. That's something of the idea that Paul has in mind as well. We are atoned for by Christ's blood, we are cleansed by Christ's blood, but we also live by Christ's blood. It is that which invigorates us. It is that which revives us. We can come before God in the strength of Christ because we are brought to life through his blood. Even as we look back earlier in chapter 2, verse 5, we were dead in our trespasses. Dead. Dead. But God made us alive together with Christ. His blood gives life. We have been brought near by the blood of Christ, atoning, cleansing, and reviving blood. Paul continues on in verse 14. He says that Jesus, he He himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. We're brought in. 
and we're brought in together. And that's the point that Paul is making. Jew and Gentile, can you think of anything more separate? Can you think of any relationship more divisive? We don't know it today. We don't. We have divisions in in our society, in our world today, political differences and divisions, racial differences, divisions, cultural, but no, none of them are like Jew and Gentile. The division that was there, Paul uses in two places this word hostility, hostility, this great separation, and he says that Christ has come and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Think with me of of the temple, the place of worship for the Jews, where they would go and they would worship God, where they would make sacrifice to God. And if you were the high priest, if you were the high priest one day every year that you got to go in to the Holy of Holies after atoning for your own sin, and you better do that right, otherwise you go in and it's time for a new high priest, you drop dead. One day every year, only one person could go in to this holy of holies. If you were a priest, you would go into the holy place. You would tend to the the furniture, the articles that were there. If you were a Jew, then yes, you could go in to this place of, of worship. If you were a Jewish male, that is. Then outside of that, there was the court of the women. And beyond that, even, the court of the Gentiles. If you were a Gentile that said, yes, I want to worship your God, and I want to commit to being like you, even then, you're only allowed so far, only to the court of the Gentiles. They've actually found tablets with an inscription that gives a recommendation, it gives a warning, advising who was welcome to the temple and who wasn't. And it read, quote, no foreigner is to enter within the balustrade and embankment around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his death, which follows. How about a no trespassing sign, right? Not just keep out no trespassing, but it'll be your own fault when you die. Not if, but when you die. This is the the dividing wall of hostility. You can't come in. You can't draw near to God. You can't associate with the people that are born of the right blood, that have the blood of Abraham in their veins, that have the outward and the physical sign of circumcision in their flesh. But Christ came 
and he broke down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. How? It says, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. He came and he lived and he fulfilled the law. He satisfied all righteousness. And the purpose was to create in himself one new man in place of the two. Not saying, let's get rid of these signs now so the Gentiles can come in and become Jews. No, Paul makes clear this is a new thing, not folding into Israel, but creating something new. Verse 14, he says, he himself is our peace who has made us both one. Verse 15, that he might create in himself one new man. Verse 16, that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Verse 18, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. There is peace. In place of hostility, one new thing that God is doing and has done through Christ. One instead of two, accomplished by Christ, who is our peace. Verse 14. He is our peace. He became the sacrifice that satisfied the law. Of commandments. By the cross, he has reconciled us both to God. He has put an end to the hostility, and through him we have access to the Father. It is all through Christ. And of all of the differences that we might be able to think of in the church, none are greater than what Christ has already overcome. None are greater than what Christ has already overcome. In him, church, we are united together. In him, we are at peace with one another and with him. In him, we are reconciled to God. In him, we are reconciled to each other. In him, we draw near to the Father together. Together, our focus should be, our focus must be on Christ, church. Unified in Christ, realize your unification. That's what Paul is saying. Jew and Gentile, dividing wall of hostility, he has actually killed the hostility. The irony of that statement Killing the hostility. But it's done. That's how powerful the work of Christ is. The hostility doesn't have a heartbeat anymore, doesn't have life anymore. The hostility that once was so much a part of life for Jew and Gentile. So much a focus of who they were and who they weren't. We're not you and you're not us. No, now it's dead, killing the hostility. 
It's done away with completely, entirely removed, killing the hostility. Being united in Christ, he says, then not only are we unified, are we united, but we are also joined together as a dwelling place for God. So he moves to this next step. Remember your separation, realize your unification, and then thirdly, recognize your identification. Recognize your identification. And this is verses 19 through 22. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. As Paul first asked them to remember, verse 12, that you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. But now, verse 19, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. And you are members of the household of God. These are the first two pictures that Paul uses, fellow citizens and members of the household. You are no longer strangers. You are no longer aliens. And church, I I, I want you to just hear those words as if Paul was speaking them to you today, because just as they applied to the Ephesians in the time that they received this letter to Paul, so they apply to us as well. Church, you are no longer strangers, and you are no longer aliens. We have a tendency to play this script in our mind. Maybe, maybe you do. I do. I know many of us do. We don't belong, we don't fit in, maybe we're not welcomed or appreciated, or we're just so different. To belong here, you need to look this way, you need to talk that way, you need to dress the other way. That was the script for the Gentiles over and over. I'm a stranger I'm an alien, I'm an outsider, I don't belong. And then even when they did come, to salvation by faith in Christ. That was so much a part of who they were. That script was still playing. That soundtrack was still going in their minds, stranger and alien. I I don't belong. Says Paul, you are no longer strangers. You are no longer aliens. You are fellow citizens. You are household members. Let's think about this. Not citizens of Israel. He's not saying, now you're part of Israel. Brought you in. Members of the temple. No, you are citizens of heaven. Along with all the saints through all time, and you are members of God's adopted family. That's a glorious truth. This isn't just a carryover of Old Testament religion. This is the church. This is New Testament, New Covenant community. 
that which has been bought by Christ, that which has been built by Christ, and he is still doing his work of building his church. That was his promise. That was what he spoke to Peter. Peter, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's bought by Christ. It's built by Christ. And ultimately, the church is victorious in Christ. Fellow citizens of a new society. You are fellow citizens with the saints, he says in verse 19. Citizenship brings privilege. Do you know that? And citizenship brings protection. Natalie and I, fairly early on in our our marriage, we attempted a move to Austria. We were going to Austria. We were going to help some friends that had planted a church there. And we found that it was nearly impossible because we weren't citizens. We couldn't get jobs there. The government wouldn't allow us to work. And so plans never worked out. We couldn't find a way to make that work because we were not citizens. It would make it very difficult to make a living there. If you've traveled internationally, you know that the power of a U.S. passport when you get to the border and you lay it down and they see this person is a citizen of the United States. But perhaps also you know its limitations. There are limits. But we are citizens of heaven. We are citizens of this new society, fellow citizens with the saints. You want to talk about privilege and protection, not citizens of the United States, though, though we are, yes, and I'm grateful for that, but even more so, citizens of heaven with the saints, with, with each of you and all believers through all times, fellow citizens together. What privilege. And what protection, because we know who the king of this society is. It's Jesus. But also members. Members of the household of God. That's a way of saying the family, the family of God. We are family members. We are in God's family. Sons and daughters of a king. You have been adopted by the Most High God. God has brought you into his family. Wow. Our Heavenly Father cares for us. He provides for us. He trains us. He disciplines us. He corrects us. He protects us. We are members of of the household of God. This is who you are by the work of Christ. But Paul doesn't stop there. He uses those, those two word pictures, those two illustrations, citizens 
of a new society, members of God's family. But then in verses 20 through 22, he begins to build out that we are also components of God's dwelling place components of God's dwelling place. Now, I say components because Paul doesn't say it here, but he uses it in other places, or, or, or Peter actually talks about us being living stones. So we're stones, we're rocks in God's dwelling place. We are components of his dwelling place. Now, Ephesus, if you remember in the book of Acts, Ephesus was home to the temple, Diana or Artemis, and they worshipped her, and this was a grand temple in Ephesus, and they looked to it, and even in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, because Timothy was in Ephesus when Paul wrote that letter to him, and he says in in 1 Timothy 3.15, I'm writing so that you know how you ought to conduct yourself in the household of God, which is the temple of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. And the temple, Diana, had these massive columns, these massive pillars that were holding up this humongous roof. And Paul is saying, Timothy, the way that the church conducts itself makes such a strong statement, upholding the truth. And that's what we try to do. And that's even our namesake, Pillar Bible Fellowship, comes from 1 Timothy 3.15, a pillar and a buttress of the truth, holding up the truth, making a stand and making a statement that we stand upon God's word and we hold God's word up. Timothy and the people in Ephesus, they would have had this grand structure in their minds. Even as they thought about temples, pillars, and buttresses of truth, they would have had this building in mind. But Paul, writing to the Ephesians, talks about an even grander, an even greater dwelling or structure. You are built, verse 20, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So these first two components of this dwelling place the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. That's the word of God. We have the the word of, of the prophets who spoke and wrote on behalf of God and the apostles who spoke and wrote inspired by God. And then Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone Jesus is is the one who is the first stone laid, and he is the standard for how this building is going to go up. He is the one that bears all of the weight of this structure, this dwelling place of God, where God is actively at work. Church, it's not a a museum. It's not a memorial. The church is made up of the people of God, the citizens of heaven. 
It's made up of the family members of God's household. And as these pieces are are built and fit together, verse 21, in whom, that is in Jesus, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Think about that magnificent truth. You're citizens of heaven. You're members of God's family. And together you're being joined together and fitted together as God's dwelling place. We're being fitted together and God dwells among us and he inhabits this place. If you remember in Exodus chapter 40, the tabernacle is constructed and the cloud covered the tent of the meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. We can't go in. We get melted In 1 Kings chapter 8, with the temple, the priests came out of the holy place and a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. The glory of the Lord comes and fills this place as we are are fitted together. As Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are being Fit together. Verse 22, in him you also are being built together. Verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together. Do you get this idea, this together, but it's a coming together? What happens when you bring two stones together? Yes, you're stones. Accept it. We're stones. And we're being brought together. Ouch. Sometimes those rough edges get knocked off. Sometimes we get hit by another, and ouch, that hurts. It's not easy. We have jagged edges, we have pointy corners. But church, what I want you to see in this is that God is working to join us together in Christ, and Christ must be our focus, and he grows us together into his dwelling place. The glory of the Lord is here among us. The foundation of the apostles and the prophets, we are founded on God's word. Christ as our cornerstone means that he is the standard and he bears the weight of the structure. And then we are fit upon that foundation. 
We don't choose our place in this structure, right? I want to be the capstone. I want to be the, the last one placed on top. Ah, complete. No, I think I'm down under the ground where dirt gets thrown so nobody sees, right? We don't get to choose our place. But we each take our place. And we recognize we are all, each and every one of us, uniquely shaped. We are each contributing differently. But it is all to God's glory. God's glory inhabits the place of his people. We are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And oh, how we need the Spirit at work among us. Let me say, I recognize this is a time that tests our unity. These are are difficult days. I, I feel it. I've had more sleep, I don't want to say sleepless, I get sleep, but less sleep nights, not sleepless, but less sleep nights, I don't know how you say that, more, more nights with less sleep than I've had probably in all my life, just in, in the last weeks, month. It's a time that unity is being tested. And tried, and, and we're, we're coming together. And I think that's great. It's, it's kind of forcing us in a little closer, but that's where the, the jagged edges and the pointy corners start to come as a factor. There's a lot of stress, there's a lot of pressure. But I want you to be encouraged by, by God's word and by this glorious truth. And that you aren't going at it alone. That you are a part of a living body of Christ. You are with the support and the love of the church with you. That we are together. God is growing us together. He is joining us together. We are being built together. And a passage like this should encourage us immensely It should cinch that knot of affection even more tightly toward our brothers and our sisters in Christ. That Christ has come and he has accomplished the victory. He has brought us to peace with God and with each other. And church, we are united in Christ as a dwelling place for God. What a glorious truth that Paul lays out for the Ephesians, that we get to study today, and I hope we'll take hold of this and know this truth and put it to the ground and begin walking it out in our lives. Would you pray with me to that end? Father, your word is true, and your word is timely, and we are grateful for it. We thank you that you meet us where we are and that through your word, Lord, you offer to us what we need, correction, encouragement, instruction, exhortation. Lord, we thank you that 
we see what a glorious work you are doing in your church and through your church. And even as we think of the history of Pillar Bible Fellowship in the scheme of things, such a short history, nine years. But in that time, what a great work you have done and how you have knit hearts together in the love of Christ. And it's my prayer that you would continue that work And even where that means there's a a greater pressing in together and a growing together and a joining together, and that is difficult, Lord, we pray that you would continue and that our focus would be upon Christ, that he himself is our peace and that we are acceptable to you through his work and through his blood. And Father, I pray that you would help us to continue walking this road together with one another and that we would be encouraging each other. There are days that we grow weak, that we are faint-hearted. But you have brought us into this life that we might be citizens of this new society together that we can look out for one another, that we can be members of a family together, that we can care for one another, that we can know each other. Lord, it's my prayer for you to send your spirit to empower this supernatural work. It's one that, that none of us would just sign up for apart from your working in our hearts. It's one that in our, in our natural flesh we would run away from, we would not desire. But your spirit has given us new life and with that new desires and new affections and we want to continue to cultivate those. And so Father, help us to walk in the truth of your word Help us to work together for the building up of the body of Christ. Help us, Lord, as we do so to display your glory, both within the church, as you work here among us, and to those outside that look in upon us. Lord, we do this not for our name's sake, but for yours. Be glorified in your church we pray and we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.